0: Hello, my name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 14 in the series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. The series is based on my book, False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. This episode is the second part of a topic that I started last time, which concerns a false Christian God that I call the great SAW. SAW, S-A-W, stands for Service and Works. Today's going to be just a little different. I'm going to start with an example of a sermon that you might have heard, or you may hear, on any Sunday morning in church. So, are you ready to go to church with me? Okay, let's go. Uh, three praise choruses sung with one optional hymn. Check. Uh, Prayer and Holy Spirit invited to the service? Uh, Check. Announcements made? Check. People seated around me awkwardly greeted? Uh, (laughs) Check. Offering taken? Uh, Cash or check. Yep, it's time for the message. Well, today's message is part seven of a 52-part annual series on the important role that service plays in the life of a Christian. In this fictional message, I just did air quotes, made up of different sermons that I've heard many times in my life, I'll only hit on the highlights. Don't worry, I'll try to have you out of here in the next three hours. <laughs> yeah, a, uh, if, if you've spent much time in, in church, that's a joke told by preachers that I've also heard many times in my life. So as you listen to this, Please keep in mind what was discussed in the last episode and think really critically about what you're hearing. Following the sermon, we'll see how it stacks up against scripture. So, here we go. I'm so happy today that if you've made the decision to follow Christ, that you will never have to know what it is to be separated from God or suffer what the Bible calls the second death. I'm so happy that because of God's grace and the sacrifice of Jesus, that those of you who know Jesus as your Savior will spend eternity with Him. But this morning, I want to encourage you to look beyond just having fire insurance or simply getting your foot in the door of heaven. God repeatedly stresses the importance of service in His Word, If you'll look at the banner on our wall there, you'll see that service is in our mission statement. If Jesus were here today, and I'm sure he is, he would tell us it's all about service. In fact, Jesus told us that if you want to be great in his kingdom, you must be the servant of all. Who here today can say that they would not like to be viewed In the eyes of God as great. I know I would. Remember folks, this means great throughout eternity. A little investment here and now in serving others will serve you well throughout all of eternity. As if getting to heaven and enjoying all it has to offer isn't enough. Did you know that there are rewards Waiting for the faithful followers of Jesus beyond eternal life? That's right. A glorified, superhuman body that will live forever. No more sorrow, no more tears, and no more death are what we might think of as only the entry level benefits of following Jesus. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that God will repay each of us according to our works. So it makes sense the more we serve, the larger our reward will be. But did you know that there are different crowns you may receive in heaven? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that the crown of righteousness awaits those who endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fight the good fight, and keep the faith. James tells us that there is a crown of life that awaits only those who have endured temptation. And Peter tells us that if someone serves as a leader in the church, that they'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Three crowns to be earned by those who serve the Lord. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us to spread the gospel like him, not passively but as though we are running a race. And not only running a race, but running it to win. For those that do, yet another crown is waiting. It's a coveted crown that Paul says is incorruptible, lasting for eternity. We, like Paul, should strive to earn that crown. In Matthew chapter 25, We find Jesus's parable of the talents. In this parable, three different servants were given various amounts of money to spend as the master of the house went away. When the master returned, two of the servants had acted wisely and invested their talents and earned their master even more talents. They were rewarded by being given even more money to oversee. But one foolish servant had buried his talent and didn't even earn his master interest. What this servant had was taken away from him and he was cast into outer darkness. Well, today Jesus gives his servants these talents that they are to wisely invest on his behalf. They're to do so not by serving their own interests like the one bad servant did, but by serving the needs of others. Just as the good servants in this parable were rewarded according to their works, so will those who serve Jesus in this life be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. But the rewards do not stop with talents and crowns. I am here to tell you today that there is also something Jesus called heavenly treasure. As He was addressing the way in which people handle their money, Jesus encouraged them not to lay up treasures on earth, but to freely give their money to lay up their treasures in heaven. You know, maybe you're not in a full-time ministry or don't always have the time to serve, but by financially supporting those who do, you are actually entering into a service covenant with them. You become their partner in whatever service they are performing on behalf of Jesus anyone can lay up treasure in heaven in this simple way well in the book of Revelation Jesus dictated seven mini letters to the Apostle John to deliver to the churches in what's now modern-day Turkey in each of those letters Jesus tells the churches that he is very aware of the service that they're engaged in In these letters, we see Jesus not only promise additional rewards for His faithful servants, but punishment for those who are not faithfully serving. We see the faithful receiving the crown of life, new names given to them by Jesus, the right to eat from the tree of life, and power over all the nations. Those who serve will sit with the Father on His throne, their names will not be blotted out of the Book of Life, and they'll be made pillars in the temple of God. Many rewards await the one who faithfully serves. Yet Jesus tells us that those who do not faithfully serve stand to lose their position in the Kingdom of God. The Apostle John puts it this way, their candlestick will be removed. Jesus says he'll overtake those who don't serve like a thief and spit such a person out of his mouth. I would hate to be that servant. Well, what is the service that Jesus values? He answers this question for us Back in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, where he speaks of two kinds of people, those that serve, who he calls sheep, and those that don't serve, who Jesus refers to as goats. Jesus tells us that one day, all will stand before him awaiting their judgment. On his right, he will place the sheep, and on his left, he will place the goats. The sheep, who are the good servants, will be invited to inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for them. The goats, well, they are not so lucky. They are cursed and cast into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil. Jesus said that whenever someone was hungry, the good servant fed them. When someone was thirsty, they gave them a drink. The good servant took in strangers, they clothed the naked, and they visited the sick and imprisoned. Jesus said when they did any of these acts of service, it was as though they were doing them for Jesus Himself. As for the bad servants Jesus refers to as goats, they didn't do those things. Jesus tells them, that when they failed to serve the thirsty, the hungry, the sick, naked, and imprisoned, it was as though they failed to serve Jesus Himself. Rather than receiving a reward, those people who failed to serve will be cast into hell. This should speak loudly, and it should speak to all of us about the importance of service. We don't want to be judged and placed on the left with the goats. Well, maybe you're here today and visiting the imprisoned or feeding the hungry at the mission doesn't sound like your thing. Maybe you're saying to yourself that being a mother or supporting your family as a father is all the service you can handle right now. Well, that's a good start, but Perhaps you can serve outside your home in ways you haven't thought of. Maybe it's by coming alongside others and supporting their ministries, either through prayer or finances. Maybe you can invest in other people's lives by agreeing to meet with someone once a week for coffee as a mentor. Because we realize the importance of service here at First Evangelical Bacterian Foursquare Church of the Nazarene, we provide many opportunities to serve. Maybe we can't all go to Bangladesh and deliver the much-needed food and clothing next month like John Smith and his family are doing, but maybe you can serve food at the local mission. And maybe you can't serve food at the mission like Brother Ralph Kirkpatrick and his wife Elsie have done every Thursday evening for the past 14 years. But... Maybe you can spend one Sunday a month helping out in the nursery. If you'd like to be plugged into a service opportunity, please visit our Opportunities for Greatness kiosk after the message. We just don't want you to miss out on the blessings that God has in store for His servants. Well, in closing, I'd like to read Jesus' own words about the importance of service. This passage is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 45 until the end of the chapter. Listen to God's Word. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him doing so, assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, brothers and sisters, will Jesus find you serving as you've been called to do when he returns? Will you be one who enters into the many blessings that he has in store for those who do? I pray that you will be. You can see the result of doing otherwise for yourself. Jesus could not have been any clearer. Please join me now in closing with prayer. Wow. So, (laughs) I remember a day when such a sermon would have really convicted me. Uh, I would have been sitting there feeling guilty through the whole thing and Wishing that I had the fortitude to earn those crowns and everything. Because the last episode prepared us ahead of time, and we're already aware of several passages of Scripture that this fictitional pastor used, you may have heard a few alarm bells going off during this message. For example, the pastor's opening argument supporting the importance of service was based on the Mark 10, 35-45 And Matthew 20 verses 20 to 28 passages of Scripture regarding being great in God's kingdom. You know, if you missed the last episode, you might just want to push pause and go back and listen to it because it's uh, really important back information for understanding what I'm talking about today. Well, we know that those passages of Scripture, uh, the Mark and the Matthew passages I just listed, are primarily dealing with how God views pride and humility, how he values humility, and he doesn't like pride at all. Those passages are not about the importance of service. The pastor's statement about attempting to achieve greatness in the eyes of God seemed to be the exact opposite of what we've come to understand about how important humility is is to God. There are other passages of scripture that the pastor used to stress the importance of service like the seven letters to the churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What the pastor just said doesn't seem to match up with what those two chapters are about. After listening to the sermon, that might be one of the passages that I look at again as I check my own beliefs and reconsider what the pastor said you know, after I get home that day from the service. The entire idea that makes it sound like there are fabulous treasures and prizes, you know, it makes it sound like a game show. Awaiting the faithful servant doesn't sound correct. Everything that I've previously learned from Scripture indicates that it is only God that deserves any credit for accomplishing anything. So, I'll need to check out each passage the pastor used in support of his thesis. The use of crowns as a reward for accomplishing something by Paul and others in the New Testament is very likely meant to be taken symbolically, but, (laughs) you know, uh, as opposed to actual crowns that we're wearing when we're in heaven. But whether literal or symbolic, to put such a reward into perspective In the book of Revelation chapter 4 we get a glimpse into the future and read of a group of 24 what's called elders who the Apostle John describes as wearing crowns these wise residents of heaven are seen seated around God's throne at first this seems as though the pastor may be correct about how we should aspire to do good works to earn such crowns like these 24 elders have however not long after we're introduced to these elders, we witness this event. This is found in Revelation chapter 4, verses 4, no, verses 10 to 11. It says this, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The elders cast their crowns towards the throne in recognition that they themselves are not worthy of the crown, and that God has been responsible for anything that's occurred in all of created reality. It's the will of God that He's caused all things to be, including the actions of His created beings. He deserves the credit and the crowns. This seems very consistent with the attitude of a humble rather than a prideful heart. The other passages the pastor used that sound like God is going to judge us and potentially send us to hell based on our works or lack of them also doesn't sound consistent with what I know about God's grace and His mercy and what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we head home after the sermon that we just heard, or sometime later, of course, each passage of Scripture which supports these ideas will need to be looked at separately and carefully. There's many Scriptures to check out that the pastor used during this sermon, but there's only time here for me to follow up on one of them, as an example of being biblically watchful. So what I'm going to do for you here is like give you an example of a typical post-sermon critical thinking follow-up. So through studying scripture, I have come to believe that it is by the grace of God alone that I will be saved from damnation and not because of the works that I do. The same fiction-based-on-fact preacher that just said that God will judge us according to our works and throw us into the place assigned for unbelievers for not feeding the hungry and visiting the sick and imprisoned has previously said from the same pulpit that it's not by our works, but only by the grace of God that anyone can be saved. Well, if both scriptures apply to the authentic child of God, how can both be true? So, I must believe in Jesus and do these things to be saved, then it's not by grace alone that I'm saved. Maybe serving in this way is evidence that I truly am saved? Well, that would mean that if I truly am saved, I will naturally serve in that way. So if I don't, eh, I'm not saved and I'll suffer damnation. Well, if that's true, what if I am saved, but in my humanness, I still fail to serve others in these ways that the preacher says that I should be serving. Wouldn't Jesus' sacrifice pay for those sins also? Is the pastor suggesting there's a place such as purgatory? A place where I'll only suffer for a little while until my sin, or lack of service in this case, is paid for through my own suffering? So, Jesus' sacrifice didn't quite pay for all my sins, if in fact, not serving is a sin? Is it that God just left enough threat hanging over my head so that I'll behave myself and do the mandatory work of a Christian? Is that what the pastor's implying? I need to review a couple of scriptures to make sure I'm on solid ground with grace. I'm going to start with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This passage seems straightforward. It's the grace of God that saves us, not what we do. We are created for good works, but God prepared them beforehand, meaning the good works we'll do, or walk in, have been predestined by our sovereign God. I have no choice but to do what God considers good works. They are irresistible to the authentic child of God. If God is sovereign, I must assume, if this is true, I have been doing good works as far as Almighty God is concerned and that's the opinion I care about, and I am walking in them. I may also review the entire book of Galatians and other passages such as Romans 3, 23-28, where Paul comes to the following conclusion. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Then there's Paul's second letter to his protege Timothy. This is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That so goes along with the theme of uh, God predestined us to walk in his good works. So as I review these scriptures, I look at the entire surrounding passage to make sure that I'm not pulling anything out of context and just turning them into some kind of a like a magic spell or incantation or uh, customizing God's word to my own theology. But having completed my review of scripture pertaining to salvation, authentic belief in Jesus being the only qualification for receiving God's redemptive grace resulting in my salvation, is confirmed. Service has nothing to do with my eternal status. As an authentic child of God, saved by and purchased with the blood of Jesus He shed on the cross, there is nothing I can do to get myself cast into outer darkness. That is not a worry. Nothing can separate me from God's love. One of the Bible hacks I utilize says that the teachings found in Scripture will not conflict. If they appear to, something is wrong with at least one of the teachings. So, with a clear indication that we are saved by grace alone, I am suspicious of the pastor's use of the key passage he cited to support his idea that our salvation is at least partially dependent on our works. So, it's time to review that passage. This is the Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46 passage that I think is one of the most often misused passages of Scripture pertaining to serving others. This is because it doesn't apply to authentic children of God who have been saved by grace. It's a passage of Scripture pertaining to a very specific group of people During a very specific future time, they indeed will be judged according to their works. All of Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are part of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse consists of a talk that Jesus gave to His disciples one evening just prior to His crucifixion. It was time for Him to relay to them critical information regarding His second coming to this earth. Careful study of the Olivet Discourse, also found in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, as well as related scriptures found in the book of Daniel, Joel, 1 Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Revelation, is necessary to fully understand the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew chapter 25. It's not as simple is just dropping into the middle of that passage of Scripture and assuming that if you don't do certain types of works, you're in danger of eternal damnation. You can read all about the sheep and goats judgment in my first book, Watch, um, which discusses the Olivet Discourse. It's like over 400 pages uh, based on a page and a half of the Bible. You can also... Uh, listen all about that on my first series of this uh, podcast on the Called Out cafe um, which was based on my book watch i think there's like 20 some episodes on that book and i discuss the sheep and goats judgment in there uh, pretty comprehensively but to sum it up during the end of the age there will be people that somehow survive god's wrath which has been poured out on the earth after jesus returns probably hundreds of millions of them. A remnant of the Jews will have survived because of God's supernatural protection. Others survive because, according to God's sovereign plan, they were in the right place at the right time when the asteroid hits the earth or the mountain falls into the sea and every city is leveled by a worldwide earthquake. Those kind of things that are mentioned in uh, Matthew 24 and Revelation. Well, following This outpouring of God's wrath on the earth. Jesus will establish his millennial kingdom. This earthly kingdom, where Jesus will reign as king, will last for a thousand years. To be judged worthy to live in that kingdom, still as a mortal human being, number one, you must still be alive, having survived God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And secondly, you must be subjected to the works-based sheep and goats judgment found in Matthew chapter 25. I know all of this may be new to you. Again, you know, go back and listen to a more thorough explanation. But to sum it up, that's what this passage is is, uh, concerning. And it's misused so often. Well, the authentic children of God will have previously been changed into their immortal bodies during the event that's popularly known as the rapture. I'm not going to talk about the timing of the rapture and all that kind of thing. Again, listen to that podcast on that if you want. Um, but Having been judged righteous because of the works of Jesus, that group of people, the authentic children of God, will rule and reign with Jesus over his millennial kingdom when he returns to establish that kingdom on this earth. Jesus rescues those that belong to him prior to God's wrath being poured out on the earth. But before he returns, Scripture is really clear that his followers will endure trials and tribulations and hardships, not because of God's wrath, but because of living in a fallen world that at that time will be ruled by a very evil man referred to as the Antichrist. Those hardships include persecution, imprisonment, and even execution. It'll be a tough time to be a follower of Jesus. Because of the extreme persecution, many Christians will turn away from the faith. However, the authentic children of God will not that group of people will choose to endure the suffering so as not to deny Jesus, the Messiah that they're waiting on to return. It's during this period which persecution of the Jews and authentic followers of Jesus takes place that the actions or works or service of those who are not authentic children of God will determine whether they will be judged good enough to be allowed to live in Jesus' kingdom on earth during this millennial reign those who will be allowed to continue into the millennial kingdom are the sheep in the story told in matthew chapter 25 and those who are not are the goats who shall go away into everlasting punishment the reason jesus said if you did it or did not do it to the least of these my brethren you did it or did it not to me is because he is literally talking about his brethren who belong to him and bear his name, those who have been adopted into his family. He's talking about the authentic children of God who are alive on the earth during that future time of persecution. How were they treated? Did you treat them well or did you not? that's going to make the difference if you're a sheep or a goat. The sheep and goats judgment of Matthew 25 has nothing to do with how you and I, assuming that you and I belong to Jesus, we're authentic children of God, how you and I treat anyone now. The sheep and goats judgment, this works-based judgment, is based on how children of God are treated by the unsaved during specific time just prior to Jesus's return in the future. It's like turned on its head. This is not how the children of God are to act and be judged by. This is how they are treated. There are scriptural reasons for an authentic child of God to love their neighbors and those kind of things. Biblical neighbors are those who are close to you or someone who God has placed in your path, like your literal neighbors, your family, or someone you come across, you know, like the Good Samaritan parable, God has not placed the burden of feeding or clothing the entire world on the backs of His children. Yet, it's obviously good to act in love and feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, visit the sick and imprisoned. Well, having acknowledged that, this passage of Scripture, the sheep and goats judgment found in Matthew 25, has nothing to do with with the priority God places on these types of works in the life of the authentic child of God. This may sound judgmental, and I acknowledge that it is, but too many pastors today stay away from studying Bible prophecy. I've known some that are almost prideful in this effort to be ignorant (laughs) about what the Bible has to say about the return of Jesus There are many reasons why. But misleading people and unjustly threatening the followers of Jesus with hell is one of the many reasons why pastors need to rethink why they choose to remain biblically ignorant of what God has to say about the future. Okay, so after checking out all the scriptural-based arguments used by the pastor during the sermon, I can conclude that the scriptures he used were all misused. They were either taken out of context, completely misinterpreted, or don't pertain to authentic followers of Jesus. As many times as the different components of this very traditional sermon may have been preached, if the point the pastor was trying to make is true, it can't depend on the Bible passages that he cited during his sermon. This doesn't mean that there's not a case to be made somewhere else in Scripture, and it doesn't mean that people may not be called by God specifically to serve in the ways promoted in the sermon. To confirm what I suspect about the message being off-base, I'm going to put together a profile of the kind of God that was represented during this message. I'm going to focus on the things that sound anti-biblical. There's a good chance that I personally would have been doing this in my head while the sermon was taking place. What I'm going to do here is an excellent quick exercise that can be done on the fly when you're listening to any teaching from the Bible. Simply ask yourself what the teaching says about who God is. What is it the teaching says that God values? What is it that it says about his abilities and his attributes? So, here's some things that I've noted about the, uh, the God that's described in this sermon that you just heard. First, He would sentence the followers of Jesus to eternal punishment according to their works. He does not consider the sacrifice of His Son being sufficient to pay for anyone's sin. Additional work is required. He is not a God of grace. He's a God that believes that people's works may be something for them to boast about and take pride in and depend on. He rewards the efforts of those who are falsely humble, who aspire to greatness by their own hand, and penalizes the truly humble who would put others ahead of themselves. He's a God that values some over others because of what they do and their ability to do it. He is a respecter of persons in this regard. This is not a sovereign God. He leaves it up to his followers to decide what works need to be accomplished. And he's depending on if they're lazy (laughs) or not. This is a God that wants his followers to be motivated by what others think of them. He's a God that wants to use a person's vanity to motivate them. He's a God that can be manipulated and must react according to what actions humans take. And he's a God who allows the destiny of individuals to be in their own hands. This is an anti-biblical false God. He is the great saw, the God of service and works. It's no wonder why the priests of this God must misuse so many scriptures to convince people to do His will. Who would want to serve such a God as this? Like, I would never support or bend my knee to Artemis, Baal, Buddha. Neither can I serve this false God, minion of Satan, who comes deceptively in the name of Jesus. A different Jesus than the one found in the Bible. But who would argue against the ingenious plan of Satan, in which benevolent service to others is at the center? What can be said against giving to the poor and needy, taking care of the sick, and visiting those in prison? From the point of view of the world, nothing could be said against doing these things. Although, some still might try if the service is even loosely associated with the name of Jesus. They don't like that guy. In that case, they would likely say the help didn't come soon enough or there wasn't enough of it. God's point of view is another matter. If one is engaging in service while trying to achieve righteousness, those works are an abomination to him. However, if the works are accomplished through the intrinsic motivation provided by the Holy Spirit within a person, those good works are yet another thing to thank God for and not take any credit for doing. It's important to remember that while one person is accomplishing the more public types of works, another, unknown even to themselves through the intrinsic motivation of the Holy Spirit, Is accomplishing other things that God considers to be important and good. They're simply being good sheep, (laughs) following the shepherd around from field to field as he accomplishes his will. Well, the sermon that you just heard expressed no understanding of the importance or even the existence of this type of work that God constantly and quietly accomplishes through his faithful, authentic children. Every day. By the way, if you're a pastor and you like the fictional sermon that I gave and you want to borrow it, you've entirely missed the point. Well, that's all I have to say about the great saw. Next time, I want to talk about the seriousness of all this. We'll talk about the warning from Jesus that couldn't have been any clearer, that at the judgment, many who will have thought they've been calling Jesus Lord will have actually spent their lives addressing a false Jesus by that title. But until then, may God bless you, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.